This is Sam Swartz and Nick Dodge with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A Dane County judge has temporarily blocked Wisconsin's fall wolf hunt. The controversial hunt was set to start in just a few weeks on November 6th. According to the Capital Times, Judge Jacob Frost says that the Department of Natural Resources needs to conduct a formal rulemaking process for hunting wolves before the hunt can resume. The wolf hunt has proved a major friction point between hunting rights groups and environmental and tribal advocacy groups. In February, the DNR was compelled by the courts to host a last-minute wolf hunt, which ended with hunters blowing past the state-imposed quota. Madison and Milwaukee will be crucial hubs in connecting rail lines between Chicago and the Twin Cities, according to a new federal study. The Federal Railroad Administration's long-term plan for the Midwest includes a corridor through Wisconsin that will have train speeds of roughly 125 miles per hour. But according to the Wisconsin State Journal, local officials are placing most of their bets on a separate rail plan, Amtrak's efforts to extend its Hiawatha line from Chicago to Milwaukee to include Madison and the Twin Cities. David Crutchen, a former Madison East High School teacher who placed hidden cameras in students' hotel rooms while on a field trip in 2019, has been sentenced to 12 years in prison. The Associated Press reports that the sentence is part of a plea deal Crutchen's attorneys reached with federal prosecutors. Crutchen will also face 20 years of supervised release after his prison stint ends. If you've had problems with your calls going through today, try redialing with the area code. Yesterday, Wisconsin rolled out a new policy that requires folks to dial the three-digit area code when making calls. Previously, folks were able to make a call in the same area code without dialing the local area code. The new policy affects both landlines and cell phones. The change is due to the FCC preparing to establish a 988 as a new nationwide suicide prevention hotline. Wisconsin's apple orchards are reporting crop shortfalls. According to Wisconsin Public Radio, the state's apple harvest this year is down roughly 30 to 40 percent from the annual average. That's likely due to some adverse weather conditions this year, including extreme droughts followed by late season frosts. According to the Wisconsin Apple Growers Association, nearly 90 percent of the state's apple orchards are small, family-owned farms. And now, here's your daily COVID-19 updates via the state's Department of Health Services. The state's rolling seven-day average of new COVID-19 cases currently stands at 1,822 cases. About 54.9% of the state, that's roughly 3.2 million people, have completed their vaccination series. And now, on to today's top stories. Today, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway and others announced a plan for a multi-million dollar residential project that will help avoid a food desert in South Madison. WORT reporter Ben Kern has more on this story. The pick-and-save located on South Park Street plans to shut down in 2022. This means some Madison residents might need to travel nearly three miles to get to the nearest full grocery option. In the face of the space being used by businesses and to avoid a food desert for the area, neighborhood leaders have been pushing for more grocery options. That campaign is called Save Our Supermarkets. And today... The City of Madison, local housing organization Moving Out Inc., and developer Rule Enterprises held a groundbreaking to announce a new solution. Their plan? 
a $43 million project to combine affordable apartments and a 24,000-square-foot grocery store. The multi-use complex is slated to include a fitness center, accessible food options, and affordable housing for underserved populations. Katherine Auerbach is executive director at Moving Out, an organization that works to provide more inclusive, affordable housing solutions to those with disabilities. She says the project will include 150 units of permanent, affordable housing to the community. She also says that housing will be mixed income. So that means that they will be affordable for households with annual incomes between 30 and 80 percent of the county median income. And 30 of those 150 units will be designated as supportive unit for people with permanent disabilities or veterans. Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway joined the groundbreaking conference today, along with developer Brandon Rule, president of real estate company Rule Enterprises. This is Rule's first real estate project in Madison. He says that after growing up watching gentrification on the south side of Milwaukee, providing affordable housing and developments is important to him. It's the latest plan in a multi-year struggle to maintain food access to the community. Initially, the plan for the Truman Olson property was to demolish the grocery store once it closed to make way for a new health center. Then, community members pushed back and SSM agreed to move their health clinic to a location on Fish Hatchery Road. Madison Alder, Tag Evers, represents part of the location to be developed. He says public input and the Save Our Supermarket campaign played a role in this current plan. So the community input was really high. It was considered really crucial to the success of this project. People didn't want to see the, the only grocery store serving Madison to go away without any option to replace it. So we listened closely to what folks had to say. Luna's Groceries had been slated to be the next supermarket in the space, a key component of the plan to fill the void. But in late September, Luna's Groceries withdrew from the plan, saying it would be challenging to accomplish their vision on this scale and in this time frame. That left the city and neighborhood wondering, who now? The current pick-and-save has agreed to remain up and running until the new grocery store starts so the community doesn't have a time gap without grocery service. Ever says this was a monumental decision. My goal all along would be that we could cut the ribbon on the new grocery store at the same time we turn out the lights on the old grocery store, that there would be no interruption. Ever says that a new company will be announced in the near future. I'm WORT reporter Ben Kern. Today, the state Senate passed a bill allowing dogs to enter certain retail food establishments. Our producer, Jonah Chester, fills us in on the details. The bill would block the state from making rules against dogs entering businesses that sell solely prepackaged food. Pups would still be barred from businesses that sell cooked food. Senator Roger Roth, a Republican from Appleton, told lawmakers at a public hearing in July that the legislation was drafted with hunting dogs in mind. He said that hunters will often stop off at outfitters on their way to camp when they've already got their doggos in tow. The opportunity to be able, I don't have a hunting dog, but for my friends, the opportunity for them when they're, when they're setting up for this to be able to bring their dog with them into, the, into uh, say, a fleet farm or other type retailer, uh, when they're going and picking out their gear and so forth, uh, would, would be an immense benefit. And they're really there really is no reason why they shouldn't be able to. Roth said that if the bill is passed, the final decision on whether to allow dogs on their premises would be up to the business owners. The bill already passed the assembly with an amendment that extended the policy to cats. 
That proposal was dropped from the Senate version. I don't understand the cat part of it, to be totally honest with you. So I don't know anyone that hunts with cats. I don't know if that's a thing. Fleet Farm, a hunting outfitter and rural supply store, is the lone group supporting the bill. And in fact, they're the only lobbying interest to file any position on the proposal. Fleet Farm sells prepackaged food, which blocks them from allowing pets. Frank Steves, the executive vice president of Fleet Farm, told lawmakers in July that the bill will help fill veterinary gaps in rural communities. We are prohibited from sponsoring store animal welfare programs, such as serving as a host for pet adoptions, and from providing the desperately needed veterinary services um, that many rural areas lack. Matt Cuso lobbied for the bill on behalf of Fleet Farm, which he says receives hundreds of complaints from dog owners who are blocked from bringing their pets into stores. And it was uh, the number one complaint they received from customers every week. They would see, receive calls and emails from people, you know, wanting to know why they could not bring their dog into a, a store that, that, that predominantly serves an agricultural animal society. Since the Senate adopted a version of the bill different from the one approved in the Assembly, the amended proposal now heads back to the Assembly for another vote. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. A bill that would extend the hours that minors aged 14 and 15 would be able to work is making its way through the state legislature. WORT reporter Carolina Bersian has the story. Current state law mirrors the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act, allowing minors under the age of 16 to work between the hours of 7 a.m. and 9 p.m. during the summer and 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. the remainder of the year. The proposed legislation would change the state law. Minors would be allowed to work between the hours of 6 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. on school nights and between 6 a.m. and 11 p.m. on non-school nights. The change would apply only to businesses not already covered under the Fair Labor Standards Act. It would not apply to companies with greater than $500,000 in sales and whose employees engage in interstate commerce. That discrepancy is one reason that the Wisconsin Restaurant Association is not in full support of the bill. Susan Quam is the executive vice president of the lobbying group. What our concerns are with this particular bill, while we support the concept of allowing certain teens to work a little bit later, we feel that, especially with the way the bill was written and the hours that it's adding, it's just going to create some compliance problems for a lot of restaurants because they either will outright not qualify as a business to allow certain you know, young people to work late, or they will have too much difficulty trying to have that teen only do the type of work that'll, that makes them qualify. While the group will not oppose passage of the bill, Quam expressed concern regarding the implementation. But we do still have our concerns about educating the entire industry and all of the small businesses out there about what this is and isn't. Because of the way it's been reported, a lot of operators only hear the part about, gee, my 14 and 15-year-olds can stay a little later. Um, they haven't heard anything about, you know, they don't hear about the fact that only if you qualify as a state-only employer. The bill passed the Senate quickly and with little debate last Wednesday. Question before the body is passage of Senate Bill 332. Those in favor of passion say aye. Those opposed, no. The ayes have the eyes still have it, and the bill is passed. Senator Robert Wirch, a Democrat from Summers, says he opposes the bill. He pointed out before the bill was passed in the Senate that the Wisconsin AFL-CIO also opposes the bill. Kids should be doing their homework, being in school instead of being working more hours 
I oppose this bill, and uh, I think uh, it sends us in the wrong direction. Following the bill's passage in the state Senate, the bill now heads to the state assembly. Representative Francesca Hong, a Democrat representing Madison, serves on the assembly committee that heard the bill last month. She says the bill does nothing to address the real issues behind any labor shortage. In a statement to WORT, she writes, We need tools to give our employers like paid leave, health care subsidies, and increasing purchasing power for everyone so that we can have flexibility in pricing our items. If we had policies that invested in us, by us, we wouldn't be resorting to absurdities of making youth work till 11 p.m. The Assembly held a hearing nearly a month ago, but the bill is lingering there. If it were passed, it would head to Governor Tony Evers. For WORT News, I'm Carolina Bursian. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. today, Republicans in the state Senate announced they'd be launching an investigation into the November 2020 presidential election. The state assembly has spent the past few months conducting its own investigation, led by former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman. For more on what Senate Republicans are planning next, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Patrick Marley, a state politics reporter with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. So earlier today, uh, Senate Republicans announced that they were launching an investigation into the November 2020 presidential election. Now that, A, is joining a similar investigation already being conducted by Republicans in the state assembly, and B, it comes sort of hot on the heels of a report issued on Friday by the nonpartisan Legislative Audit Bureau that actually already looked into the uh, November election and uh, certain, certain elements of that. What exactly did that report from the Legislative Audit Bureau have to say? Give me sort of like the top lines from that. The probe by the Audit Bureau was meant to look at um, whether voting machine tests had worked, uh, how clerks dealt with complaints, how the State Elections Commission handled advice that it gives to clerks, and whether it was following the rules that it's supposed to follow. Did it find that those rules were followed and that everything was essentially shipshape? So it didn't find any problems that would uh, question the results. It checked, uh, I think, 60-some tests that are done on machines to make sure they're counting ballots accurately and found that 59 of them had accurately counted the ballots from a test and that one of them didn't have appropriate documentation, so they couldn't make a ruling on that one. But they didn't find anything that would question the results. The biggest criticism, I would say, in the audit was that the Elections Commission has put forward some policies that it is not formalized into rules that can be reviewed and approved or blocked by the state legislature. So they said that if the Elections Commission wants to continue some of its policies, like allowing uh, absentee ballot drop boxes 
and allowing um, clerks to fix addresses that are missing for witnesses on absentee ballots, that it would need to adopt these formal rules. That would give lawmakers a chance to weigh in on them. So if this report largely found that the election was safe and secure and everything was run in a shipshape manner, how are Senate Republicans justifying this new investigation? Well, different ones have uh, different views of it. So one of the co-chairmen of the audit committees, Rob Coles from the Green Bay area, he said that uh, there were some concerns that uh, were raised for him and that he wants to do some changes to how elections are run, but also said overall this shows the election was safe and secure. That was Those were the exact words he used. Uh, Senator Kathy Bernier, who's a former election official herself, said that this showed that the election was sloppy, but also that it did not expose any fraud. But other Republicans say they view this as a much more serious issue and on Monday approved a sort of further review of the audit's findings that Senator Bernier's committee will be in charge of to dig in further to what the auditors had come across. So aside from just the general outline that this will be an investigation into the election, do we have any idea of the finer particulars here, how it's going to mesh with the Assembly's uh, investigation? So from what we know, the Assembly is doing a deeper dive than the Senate. Now, the Assembly has been at work on this since the summer, ostensibly, and has put at least $670,000 of taxpayer money into their investigation uh, the Senate Republicans haven't said if they're going to be spending any taxpayer money on it, you know, if they're going to hire outside attorneys or outside investigators. And they haven't given us the scope at all of what their review is going to look like, other than to say they want to look into this issue of the city of Madison did not allow the legislative auditors to handle their ballots and other election records. Senate Republicans don't like that, and they want to find out more about that. Tell me more about that. What what justification did Madison City Clerk Mary Beth Witzelbell give for not allowing uh, officials from lab to handle that information? Right. So the auditors went to clerks all over the state and uh, asked them about their election policies and did uh, samplings of looking at, at ballot envelopes and things like and other election records to determine how they handled different things that they might encounter as clerks. Three communities, Madison, Milwaukee County, and Little Slomico up in the Green Bay area, declined to let the auditors touch their ballots, in some cases other election records, saying U.S. Department of Justice guidance strictly limits who can handle those materials. And so they said, you can look at them, uh, we can have staff hold them up for you. We can flip them over. You can spend as much time with our staff looking at them as you want, but you can't actually touch them. Uh, auditors didn't uh, take advantage of that in the case of Madison and I don't believe in Milwaukee County and uh, noted in their audit report that they weren't able to physically handle the ballots. That is what has the Senate Republicans eyebrows raising. Now, I'd like to circle back around again to what the lab report had to say with the election commission, the Wisconsin Elections Commission. Now, has the WEC come out and responded to any of the criticisms raised in that report? So the Elections Commission was a little frustrated with this audit. Normally, when the Audit Bureau, which is very widely respected by both Republicans and Democrats uh, historically, uh, but normally when they review a state agency, uh, they will do their finding, do their work over months, and then before they release their report publicly, will share it with the state agency, and then the state agency can point out what they think are errors or nuances that aren't being addressed, and in any case, uh, provide a letter responding to the audit that's at the end of the audit. So if they go into the Department of Transportation and they find problems, 
the Department of Transportation gets to say, uh, right as the public becomes aware of the audit, this is why we think these are the changes that we promised to adopt. These are the things auditors found we agree with. Oh, by the way, there are things that we think the audit got wrong. The Elections Commission wasn't given that opportunity, so they are frustrated by this audit that it didn't follow its normal practices in allowing them to review it. They have indicated that there are some things that are not entirely accurate. They haven't said what those things are yet. But in general, they've said, look, this found some flaws, as any audit will, but they didn't find anything that undermines the overall effect of the election, how the election was conducted, or what the results were. So they say it shows they have a a relatively clean bill of health. Again, Republicans disagree with that assessment. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Before I let you go, is there anything else we haven't had a chance to touch on about this issue that you think folks should be aware of? There's a lot of nuance we kind of had to leap skip over here. But in our final minute, anything else you'd like to float that you think people need to know going forward as the Senate launches its investigation? Um, I mean, I would urge people in the public to either look at the audit or look at news accounts of the audit rather than just going by what they might hear from partisans on the issue. You know, the um, I think there are a lot of people who are trying to spin the audit to, into being, uh, you know, showing there were absolutely no problems at all, which is not true. It did find some issues. And those who saying that it paints this uh, terrible picture that everything about the election must be questioned, which is also not what the audit said. So I would just say if someone is telling you very certainly that the audit is black or white, you should be skeptical of that. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. You bet. Thanks a lot. Patrick Marley is a state politics reporter with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. You can find all of his reporting on this issue online at the Journal Sentinel's website. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. We get the week ahead in local government, remember the life of the actress Ruby D, and take a deep dive into Madison's 2022 budget. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. We'll be right back in a flash. The time is now 6.33, and you are listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge, here with my co-host, Sam Schwartz. Thanks for joining us. 
Every Monday, we sit down with Brenda Conkle of ForwardLookout.com to scan uh, the city and county agendas for what's up in local government. This week, budgets, budgets, and some more budgets as both the city and county hash out their 2022 spending plans. Conkle joined WORT's Dylan Brogan shortly before airtime today. Right, it's Monday. That means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. Budget, that's what's happening in just broad strokes. So we'll start with Dane County and already in progress is the Personnel and Finance Committee. Uh, they started at 530. All these meetings are virtual unless otherwise uh, described. So talking budget with Personnel and Finance right now for the county, right? They are, um, and they have a their regular agenda, and then they are going to be looking at specifically personnel and finance-related items, which is the county treasurer, library, and administration, as well as public health, Madison, and Dane County. Uh, prior to them getting to the budget, they will be talking about some leases out at the airport, um, as well as um, the contract to provide commissary banking and trust services to the uh, jail, and then also um, discharge of pollutants to the waters of Dane County. There's a new ordinance that they're going to do on that. And then they're going to be talking about their county board budget, uh, their county board salaries. Um, they have to pass it before the new county board gets elected in the spring. So this is the every two years when they look at that. They giving themselves a pay raise. Oh, they always give themselves a pay raise. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hmm. That's, 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 no, not always so much, and they really don't get paid that much. That's so true. It's, it's all right, so let's bad. keep it in check there. But it seems like the yeah. city, it's always a bigger deal when the alders try to raise their pay. Well, they've tried to raise it by much bigger amounts than what the county has. Okay. All right. Well, also happening right now, 530, the human, the Health and Human Needs Committee is having their budget meeting. So more, more of the same, going over amendments to uh, both their operating capital budgets. Yep, they also have their regular um, agenda as well. So they'll be talking about the Mental Health Triage Center, um, which a lot of people are looking forward to, at least in the line of work that I am in. Um, and then they are going to be looking at the affordable housing funds that they're going to be spending. And then they will be going over some of the um, amendments that they will be proposing to um, the um, Personnel and Finance Committee. All right, Tuesday, 1215, the Criminal Justice Council, its Racial Disparity Subcommittee, We'll uh, be giving an up. They'll be getting an update on the community restorative court. Uh, any anything else of note? They'll also be talking about that triage center, um, and then also um, the community justice center initiative update. And then they'll be talking about twenty twenty budget. Our time is short today, so we have to move on to the city of Madison. And at happening four thirty, it started. Maybe they're wrapped up. Uh, maybe they have a little bit left to go. But the finance committee uh, met virtually today. And uh, a lengthy agenda, and it uh, includes talking about the exec- the operating budget, right? <laughs> yep, definitely. Um, so they have a $1.4 million um, grant for violence prevention on their agenda, as well as um, purchasing 22 acres of land out on the north side, the special charges for State Street, um, using uh, some money f- for hotels to put people who are homeless into those hotels. And then um, they're going to do their operating budget, the 2022 executive operating budget. And then they're going to go into closed session and they got three items for closed session. One is going to be a, an update on the permanent men's shelter. Another is selecting a grocer for Park Street and then some more TIF for um, Elements Labs out in University Research Park. And why are they going into closed session for those? Do we know? 
Um, usually there's something about negotiations or some sort of legal issue that they need to discuss about them. Okay. Wednesday, 4.30, the Urban Design Commission uh, meets virtually at 4.30. That's Wednesday. And they got a couple projects that, that are particular interest to if they're in your neighborhood, right? Uh, definitely. Um, they will be talking about the update on the South Madison plan. Um, and the final attachment to the town of Madison. So that's a, a big uh, project yeah, for the yeah. city of Madison in the upcoming year. And then they have projects at uh, 555 West Mifflin Street, um, Ash Street and Regent Street, which I believe is West High, um, yes, 804 Felon Road and 1824 South Park Street. Transportation Commission, also an uh, important committee meeting Wednesday. Uh, there'll be, uh, looks like, some grant applications for federal transit dollars to renovate Metro's main facility on East Washington Avenue, uh, but but more on buses and parking. Yep, they'll also be looking at uh, route planning and deciding how to um, kind of come back from COVID. Um, they're also looking at placing some storage lockers um, in parking facilities uh, for people who are homeless and also people who ride their bikes downtown and anybody else who may need to use them. And then they are looking at the 2022 Public Works Transportation Projects um, likely giving feedback for the next year's budget. 5 p.m., the Vending Oversight Committee is being virtually. Quick item, they're going to go over the streetery program and review and discuss, so it'll be interesting to see in what iteration that program continues that allowed restaurants to use sidewalks and city streets, right, to have more outdoor dining, and have you heard anything about that? Um, I haven't heard anything recently, um, but yeah, there'll be the whole meeting is just to review that mm-hmm. and discuss what they think should happen next. We'll drop down to Thursday, if you don't mind, Brenda, and we'll we'll talk about the Madison Guaranteed Income Pilot Program Task Force. Yeah, this is a, maybe their second or third meeting that they're having. Uh, they'll be talking about benefits of strategies and counseling updates, and they'll get some more updates about their MOUs and what name they're going to call it. Um, and then they are talking about um, hiring a program manager and a research fellow. Huh. All right. Well, before we go, Brenda, I just want to ask you, it seems like both the Dane County and the Madison budget process has been a little less contentious than previous years. Some years may just be like that, but do um, you think anything has to do with all that COVID money that came through? I think it does. I think um, this year's budget is probably a little more comfortable for many folks. Um, they, there's been, they've been spending money throughout the last two years. Um, and so I think federal a lot money. of projects, federal money. Yeah. Uh, so I think that a lot of the projects that people may have wanted to, to advocate for are already, you know, in many respects, already being paid for. Um, the next couple of years, the budget probably won't be as comfortable. Thank you for your insight. Brenda Conkle, if you have um, more you want to look into how city and county government works and what the meeting and agenda items are this week, head on over to forwardlookout.com. Thank you, Brenda. You are welcome. This week on The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson looks back on the life of the multi-hyphenate Ruby D, who in her time worked as a journalist, civil rights activist, actress, and poet. Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long 
This Wednesday, October 27th, marks the birth of Ruby Dee, actor, poet, playwright, screenwriter, journalist, and activist. She was born in Cleveland, Ohio in 1922. Her father was a cook, waiter, and porter. Her mother left when Ruby was very young. Her stepmother was a school teacher. Dee grew up in Harlem, graduated from Hunter College in 1945, and joined the American Negro Theater, working with Sidney Portier, Harry Belafonte, and Hilda Simons. She acted for 70 years. She's probably best known for her lead role with Sidney Portier in Raisin in the Sun, both on Broadway and in the 1961 movie, alongside her spouse, fellow actor and actress Ozzie Davis. Ruby Dee protested the Vietnam War and marched for civil rights. They were friends with both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. They were both MCs at the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. In 1965, she became the first African-American woman to play major roles at the American Shakespeare Festival at Stratford, Connecticut, playing Cordelia in King Lear and Kate in Taming of the Shrew. In 1968, she became the first black woman to be featured regularly in the primetime soap opera Peyton Place. Dee picketed Broadway theaters that were not employing black actors for their shows and spoke out against film crews that hired few or no African Americans. She was an active member of the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, and the NAACP. She was also an active member in the Harlem Writers Guild for over 40 years. Lesser known is Ruby Dee and Ozzie Davis's support of union efforts, especially 1199, the Progressive Hospital Workers Union that today is part of the SEIU. Mo Foner, one of 1199's lead organizers and the main person running its cultural events, noted their support in his book, Not for Bread Alone, in 2002. Dean Davis became part of 1199's annual cultural event, A Salute to Freedom. In their 1998 memoir, they refer to our relationship with Foner as one of the most fruitful and rewarding associations of our lives. They add that 1199's progressive policies on race and gender equality made it a pioneer. Ozzie said that, except for paying dues, he and Ruby considered themselves members of 1199. Ruby and Ozzy were often on the picket line at the 1965 Lawrence Hospital strike in Westchester County. 1199 was striking for union recognition in the town of Bronxville, which was rich, lily-white, and Republican. The strikers were African-American and lived elsewhere. The strike was supported by the NAACP, Dr. King, and local papers. After 55 days, the strikers prevailed. A key gain that helped get new state laws recognizing hospital workers right to collectively bargain. Dee and Davis starred together in Spike Lee's 1989 movie, Do the Right Thing. Dee was also in Lee's 1991, Jungle Fever. In September 1992, one of the founders of 1199, Leon Davis, died. 2,800 people attended the memorial service in Lincoln Center. Speakers included Mayor Dinkins, Coretta King, Retired Mount Sinai nurse's aide Josephine Bell, a veteran of the 1959 strike of six New York City hospitals, members of Leon Davis's family, and Ruby and Ozzie. In 1999, Dee and Davis were arrested in New York for protesting the shooting of Amado Diallo. In early 2003, they signed on to a group letter in The Nation magazine vowing opposition to the pending war in Iraq, along with Howard Zinn, Noam Chomsky, Susan Sarandon, and many others. 
Ruby Dee passed on in her home in New Rochelle, New York, on June 11, 2014, surrounded by family and friends. She was 91. She was cremated, and her ashes are held in the same urn with Davis's, with the inscription, In This Together. And that is our story for today. For the past isn't past. I'm Harry Richardson. The time right now is 6.45 p.m. and you are listening to the live local news right here on WORT. The city of Madison is knee-deep in its 2022 budget process. In any year, budget negotiations would be difficult and confusing, but this year's process is further complicated by the pandemic, its economic fallout in millions of federal relief dollars. For a deep dive into Madison's proposed 2022 budget, Monday 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing spoke with Jason Stein, a researcher with the Wisconsin Policy Forum, a nonpartisan think tank. The forum just published its annual report on Madison's proposed budget. So we talked about the ARPA funds in particular from the federal government, keeping uh, the city budget alive for now. Um, How? Tell us a little bit about uh, how much money that accommodates. And then what are the prospects under either the bipartisan infrastructure or the two trillion federal budget bills that are still stalled in Congress? Is there an opportunity for some permanent federal relief down the road? So far, the the city of Madison has received more than 100 $90 $90 million from from ARPA, from the CARES Act, from other federal pandemic relief legislation. So quite a, quite a large sum of money for the city. There's one uh, slice of that that's known as the ARPA Fiscal Recovery Fund, and that alone is providing $47 million uh, that is pretty discretionary, that the city has a lot of various ways it can use it. And you know, the city is plugging most of that money into its 2021 budget, this so this year and next year. And, you know, more than uh, half of that going to fill budget holes and maintain services during a time when city revenues are just not what they were in 2019. Now, give us some context here. You said $190 million in federal funds and $47 million of that is sort of discretionary. How's that compared to the overall city operating budget? Uh, well, you know, we've got, we've got a city operating budget this year that's in the $350 million range. So, I mean, you know, this is, this is a very significant amount of money. You know, I think one of the things that the city has got to prepare for is that this is not going to continue indefinitely. It's certainly possible that the infrastructure bill would funnel a significant amount of money to the city for capital projects. But in terms of things that are going to sustain ongoing 
city operations. You know, given where things are at in Washington, I don't think there's there's any reason to think that the city is going to get large, you know, benefit from large new legislation. It's certainly possible that there are some pots of money uh, from from something like ARPA that are still getting distributed and that there might be an award announced that would be new to the city. But I think in terms of, you know, Congress acting to prop up the year-to-year budgets of local governments in the country, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't look for anything big there. Even under the, the $2 trillion reconciliation bill? I mean, it's a great question. It's certainly possible. I mean, I think, number one, you know, I think it's probably likely that there will be some type of reconciliation bill, but for there, you can't even count on that, right? Um, but let's say some bill does happen, you know, it's certainly possible that um, the city would benefit directly or indirectly from that. And I think it's it's more than possible, but probable that the city would benefit from the infrastructure bill and some, you know, terms some some kind of capital project. But, you know, again, I mean, this has just been unprecedented, the amount of aid that the city has received over the past couple of years. And so, you know, it's there are funds that will last into 2024 for certain parts of city government, like like transit. But I think to count on those continuing would be risky from a budget standpoint. And clearly the expectation, though, is that some of those uh, revenues like um, uh, hotel tax, hotel motel tax, parking revenues, um, those kinds of things will rebound at some point. Um, Is that a realistic expectation? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on what you mean by rebound. And in terms of go higher than they are now, absolutely. I think that the question, though, is that, you know, if you look at if you look at uh, bus ridership by month, pre-pandemic, you had months where uh, Metro Transit in Madison would get 1.2, 1.3 million riders, or even even above that in 2019 and into 2020. You know, for the most recent month, um, I think the most recent month was as high as we had seen since the start of the pandemic, and it was below 400,000. So, I mean, you know, we could double what we're at now or even triple and still be below the highest months of 2020. And, you know, room room taxes are another example where we are still this year and even projections for next year, well below 2019. Parking revenue, again, way, way down. It's projected next year to be about half what it was in 2019. I mean, that's the challenge in terms of sustaining the ongoing operation. Now, you know, room tax is uh, pretty much a clear clear revenue. Uh, there's not a lot of expenditure associated with that from the city. But when you're talking about things like transit or parking, I mean, those are really intended to cover expenditure costs. And obviously, those have sure. to be lower, too. And particularly with something like transit, where the, the fares aren't even really intended to, to cover the full cost of the operation. So have, have there been savings on the spending side as well? Oh, there, there absolutely has been. Yes, there, there absolutely has been. But I mean, I think, you know, again, um, in terms of parking, I mean, you certainly have, for both parking and metro, you, you have debt that needs to be paid. You have, in terms of metro, one of the challenges is you can cut routes. I mean, you know, that's a way you can, you know, you can save money is by cutting routes, but then what problem do you have? That depresses your ridership even further. It also creates difficulties for uh, low-income workers or, you know, just people in this, you know, just low-income people in the city that need to get their groceries. So, 
you know, I mean, that's the challenge that you run into is that you, you know, particularly in the case of Metro Transit, you want to have that system return to something uh, like it was, or even, you know, we had the, you know, the, the city administration had the hopes that they could increase uh, transit ridership by, I think, about a third over what it was in 2019, which now that seems, you know, difficult, if not impossible, it would be you know, wonderful just to return to where we were at in 2019. Some things like bus rapid transit, uh, which is a project which is being advanced in this budget proposal, might assist us in, you know, boosting ridership levels, returning. But, you know, again, um, this is a once in a century pandemic and rebuilding from it is not is not going to be easy. All right. We've been speaking with Jason Stein of the Wisconsin Policy Forum. Thank you so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz. Hey, it's my pleasure. Always enjoy it. On this week's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson checks out two new features, Dream Horse, a heartwarming story about community, and Only Murders in the Building, a 10-part murder mystery. We lost our jobs, our community, even our pride. And then Dream came along and reminded us what life is like when you are old. That was a clip from the trailer for Dream Horse by Welsh-born director Euros Lynn. It's based on a true story about the people of a small Welsh town who decide to form a group to raise a racehorse. At the heart of the story is the put-upon Jan Vokes, played by a great Tony Collette. She's a middle-aged woman living in a small town, holding down two jobs and taking care of her elderly parents. She lives with her unemployed husband, Brian a fine Owen Teal, who's a bad listener. Jan works days at a supermarket and nights at a local pub. She desperately needs something to look forward to, as she explains to Brian. One night at the pub, she overhears a man, Howard Davis, Damian Lewis, bragging about his glory days as part of a racehorse syndicate. The bartender warns Jan. He almost lost his house, but he doesn't talk about that part. But Jan, who is fond of animals, is inspired. She is soon reading racehorse magazines, and doing her research online. She doesn't have the money to buy a horse, pay a stud fee, and so on, so she leaflets her friends and neighbors and convinces Howard to come on board. Jan, Brian, and Howard are alone in a meeting room, about to leave when a group of local characters trickles in. Howard explains the slim chance of getting an actual winning racehorse, but the group is captured by Jan's dream and determination. Everybody chips in an equal amount weekly, and Jan and Brian take care of getting the horse. Jan and Brian become very attached to the horse and the resulting foal. The foal grows, the group names her Dream Alliance, and Jan takes Dream to Philip Hobbs, Nicholas Farrell, a shrewd professional trainer. Dream is a little slow getting started, but shows a lot of heart like his owner, as Hobbs says taking her on. Soon Dream is doing what she was born to do, race. Her owners are overjoyed. There are no real surprises here, but the warm-hearted enthusiasm is infectious, a truly joyous, well-filmed story. The cinematography by Eric Wilson is beautiful, with wonderful drone shots of the Welsh countryside, the small town, and the city of Cardiff. There's a fine closing credit sequence that evokes earlier scenes in the pub of a karaoke featuring the actors and the real-life people they portrayed. It would have been fun to see on a big screen, but it was still very enjoyable on Hulu. Next up, a popular mystery comedy miniseries, also on Hulu. Approximately 12 minutes from now, I will be murdered. 
Tim Kono's death has been ruled a homicide. That was a clip from the trailer for Only Murders in the Building, a new 10-part comedy starring Steve Martin, Martin Short, and in an attempt to attract a younger crowd, Selena Gomez. This is a really fun parody of New York's Upper West Side residences and current pop culture, in particular the True Crime podcast. The three are also producers of the project, created by Martin and John Hoffman. Martin plays Charles Hayden Savage, an actor who had a hit detective series in the 90s and hasn't done much since. Short plays Oliver Putnam, a washed-up theater director with a big ego. They've lived for decades in the Alconia, a fictionalized Ansonia building. They meet the mysterious Mabel, played by Gomez. The three have nothing in common, but are thrown together one night by a fire alarm and alleged suicide in the building. They are across the street at a restaurant waiting to get back home when Charles and Mabel notice Oliver is listening to a podcast, All Is Not Okay in Oklahoma, by their idol, Cinda Canning. Tina Fey. They discover they are all murder mystery podcast fans and soon decide to find out what happened to Tim Kono, Julian Sihe, and do a podcast as they solve the mystery. They decide Kono was murdered, and the title of the podcast and the series is born, Only Murders in the Building. Oliver is especially keen on the podcast. He needs to come up with some quick cash to avoid eviction. The 10 episodes, about 45 minutes each, each leading us, hopefully, closer to the solution. Each episode reveals more about the three and their relationships with others in the building. The story takes several twists and turns, all fairly believable, until that final episode and reveal. Without saying too much, I'm undecided about how believable the ending is, but it does set us up for the possible second season. All in all, a fun series worth checking out. For Monday's WRT Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Ben Kern and Carolina Bursian. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, Dylan Brogan, and the 8 o'clock buzzes Brian Standing. Jonah Chester produced this newscast, Victor Calzoni engineered the show, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcast, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night. And you are listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison.